I'd like to begin an, uh, a portion of the rest of our time together to highlight elements in the 12 by, and again I refer to it as the 12 by because um, the 12 by 12 would be the steps and traditions, and we're basically talking about the steps. Whenever I talk about the traditions, I'll be going, I'll be re referring to the by 12. Um, but anyway, that's how my mind works. <laughs> I think I'm going to sit down for this portion and focus on some pages and lines in the chapter on step four in the 12 and 12 that bring home over and over and over again the complexity of this constellation of instincts in terms of how it affects our behavior and how it triggers behavior in others. And so the point that's being made is karmic law is always in play. So what's going on in me triggers things that are going on in others. And, and you know, goodness in me brings out the goodness in others. The anger in me brings out the anger in others. It's a pretty simple formula. And so we have to remember that not only does it cause us misery, but it triggers misery in the world. Um, and the, the dimension of that is why I think Bill says on page 80, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on really any time on 8 and 9, but he says, since defective relationships with other human beings have nearly always been the immediate cause of our woes, including our alcoholism, no field of investigation could yield more satisfying and valuable rewards than the one of, of making right those wrongs. And, and I think the dynamic in terms of the language now that we have of these instincts is that our security instincts are met through our social instincts, typically. And so defective relationships mean defective security. And defective security drives fear, drives all of what goes on with us. And the book's pretty clear about that. So after this amazing statement, when that happens on the bottom of page uh, 42 in the 12 by, when that happens, uh, instincts exceeding their proper function, our great assets have become, have turned into physical can't use and mental can't quit liabilities as well as all of the anger and frustration. For years I was wonder, I've, I've been, I've been baffled by where, where does emotion come into all of this? And, and I was, I did a workshop a couple of years ago in New York City in April and, uh, and it was about, well, some interesting stuff I'd been discovering about the power of belief and uh, perception and all of that. And a woman came up to me and said, you know, emotions play such a critical role in all of this. And I, and I just couldn't explain it. I mean, I just for me, it was like, well, yeah, where do emotions fit in? You know, the thought forms the word, forms the deed, forms the habit, forms the character. Character takes us to our destiny and character also informs our thoughts. But where do emotions fit in? And that's another seminar in and of itself. But, um, but I've, I finally read in the 12 by where emotions fit in. Emotions are the vocabulary of our instinctual profile. Emotions are the vocabulary of our instinctual profile. And let's use the classic restless, irritable, and discontented as one emotional profile from one, emotion, one instinctual profile to happy, joyous, and free. So for me, it's my 
instinctual profile speaking in my emotions. And typically, you know, nature obeys us to the precise degree that we obey nature. If I'm using my will properly, I will be instantly rewarded with good feeling. And if I'm not using my will properly, I will be instantly aware through some kind of emotional struggle, resentment, fear, anger, worry, remorse, guilt, that things aren't right. So if I pay attention to my to the language of my emotions, to my emotions as language or communicating something to me, it has to do with with this constellation. So it goes on in the bottom of 42 to talk about these this emotional profile, this instinctual profile, using a lot of different languages. Liabilities in each of us. Now again, it's talking about these instincts. Uh, it really is helpful for me to not shame myself, to understand that my character defects are in, uh, my God-given instincts exceeding their proper function or not having enough of them. Shortcomings, not enough of a good thing. Character defects, too much of a good thing. The good thing, my instincts. And they need to be kept in check. They need to be kept in the, in the proportion of my original divine design. When we're born, we're, you know, that little sliver of self, a little food, a little poop, but the rest of it's spirit. I love looking into infants' eyes because, man, they are on an awe and wonder trip. You know, they'll, they'll get a little whiny, but then they'll be angry at something and then, you know, they don't hold on to anything. It's just this, this purity. And I have this belief that when I look into an infant's eyes, I'm, it's kind of like, a real God connection, and, and as long as I believe it, it'll be true. So, <laughs> Liabilities in each of us. Our natural desires have warped us, top of 43. What our emotional deformities are. Emotional deformities. So here are some, here's a beginning of a long list of different ways that one instinctual area out of whack, will screw up everything else. And that's, that's so important to remember that uh, one instinctual area out of whack, being demanded, will mess up everything else. And here's an example. Um, it's essentially page 43, line um, 13 through 16. Um, sex desires ahead of everything else. In such a case, this imperious urge, imperious exceeds its proper function, urge, instinct, can destroy their chances for material and emotional security. You know, if sex is the whole deal, you'll destroy your chance for material and emotional security as well as their standing in the community. Prestige, pride. Another may develop such an obsession for financial security. And again, this is why I think that that list from Recovery Dynamics is priceless because it's comprehensive to all of the language that's used in all of these texts. An obsession for financial security that they want to do nothing but hoard money going to the extreme, they can become a miser or even a recluse who denies themselves both family and friends. 
personal relationships, social. Next um, page 43, line 22. A frightened human being, second line down of the last full paragraph, a frightened human being determined to depend completely upon a stronger person for guidance and protection. This weak one, failing to meet life's responsibilities with their own resources, never grows up. Disillusionment and helplessness. Now, here's a, comp here's a combination of fear, which is the language of emotional security, of our, both our security instincts for material security and emotional security. Here's an example of where fear drives me to dependent relationships. And fear can drive me to dominant relationships. Now, I need both, but again, what we're talking about here are when they exceed their proper function. Never grows up. Disillusionment and helplessness are their lot. In time, all their protectors either flee or die, and they once more are left alone and afraid. Emotional, emotional security through fear kills our social. Um, we've also seen men and women who go power mad who devote themselves to attempting to rule their fellows, the dominant form of emotional security. These people often throw to the wind every chance for legitimate security and a happy family life. I mean, sometimes I, I just witness people that, that, you know, again on this power trip, and I think, gosh, um, I'll bet they're not really very happy. And um, if they're hurting me, then that helps me have compassion not a resentment. Whenever a human being becomes a battleground for the instincts, there can be no peace. Um, page 44, line 7. Every time a person imposes his instinct unreasonably upon others, unhappiness follows. If the pursuit of wealth tramples upon people who happen to be in the way, material security, out of whack, then anger, jealousy, and revenge are likely to be aroused. This paragraph is about the karma of these things out of whack. The paragraph we just read are about what happens to us when these things are out of whack. This is what happens to the people around us. We will trigger anger, jealousy, and revenge. Um, if sex runs riot, there is a similar uproar. Demands made upon other people for too much attention protection and love. And again, Ernest Kurtz felt that Bill was really talking about demanding these instinctual needs to be met as, as the greatest block to mature sobriety. Demand made upon other people to, for too much attention, protection, and love can only invite domination or revulsion in the, protection them, in the protectors themselves, two emotions quite as unhealthy as the demand which evoked them. When an individual's desire for prestige, uh, a natural desire to be viewed as a leader, becomes uncontrollable, whether in the sewing circle or at the international conference table, the other people suffer and often revolt. This collision of instincts, and again, karmic law, what goes around comes around, can produce anything from a cold snub in the sewing circle to a blazing revolution in, in an international conference. In these ways, we are set in conflict not only with ourselves, but with other people who have instincts too. 
So this is just another way of, of Bill reinforcing the idea of what goes around comes around. We invariably find that at some time in the past we have made decisions based on instincts that later placed us in a position to be hurt. That's why this book has such meaning for me now. If I didn't know about the distinction of the books emphasizing the difference between the struggles of mature recovery versus early recovery, if I didn't know about the instincts, this would all be kind of, okay, neat stuff. I'm sure a lot of words there. Not quite sure what it means. Um, alcoholics especially should be able to see that instinct run wild in themselves is the underlying cause of their destructive drinking. Um, and in that sense, later on, he refers to these uh, long-standing childhood hurts. And that's the idea of defective relationships with others was the source of all of our misery, even our alcoholism. That's what he's talking about here. So what is so incredibly revealed um, later on in chapter 6, which I can't wait to get to, step 6. I mean, you know, Joe and Charlie call 6 and 7 in the big book the pick and shovel steps because you get about as many instructions for 6 and 7 as you do when you buy a pick and a shovel. Hey, where's a manual for this shovel? You know, there's no manual for the shovel. It's just it's a tool. But man, the the, the broadening and deepening of our understanding of what six and seven are all about um, is incredible how it expanded for me the scant information in the big book um, all now in the context of instincts Bill spends a lot of time expanding this idea even more and more so page last sentence on page 44 Instincts on rampage balk at investigation. The minute we make a serious attempt to probe them, we are liable to suffer severe reactions. This is the challenge to mature sobriety. And I caution sponsees when I'm taking them through the work that now that they have some intellectual understanding that their real problem they're going to be working on is self, and self is going to be analyzed and, and kind of dismantled, faced, and be rid of the things in ourselves that have been blocking us, that self's going to throw you its best game. Who, uh, Josh Beckett. That's what self's going to do to you when you start to identify that this is the real problem. Self's going to send, send you a, a Josh Beckett game. He's a really good pitcher who, who, for Boston who, uh, who made a big difference when they were down 3-1 to one in the American League Championship Series. What a, I mean, what a machine. So I figured that would impress some Boston people, right? That, that I couldn't remember his last name? Did I impress you with that? Yeah. I trolled for it. So essentially, I, I think it's important that, um, that we essentially be ready to recognize that self's going to throw me its best game 
if I'm about to dismantle it in the fourth step. And then, as Marion used to say, it's as simple as recognizing and saying, Satan, get behind me. God, she used to do that well. Satan, get behind me. Pretty easy to do. If we know, if we can anticipate it, be ready for it, we'll see it for what it is. But step six even takes this distinction even further, and I want to mention it so that I don't forget it. Step six essentially begins to tell me that my initial getting sober, my initial recognizing that I'm losing my life is obviously affecting my what? Instinct. Security instinct. And so the getting sober is an easy alignment of God's instinct and mine. When I finally recognize the hopeless condition of addiction, I I have a very natural, positive alignment of my instinct for survival and God's instinct for me to survive. And that's why getting sober is different than getting mature sobriety because then we're talking about this exact thing. The minute we make a serious attempt to probe these instincts, we are liable to suffer severe reactions. That my instincts are going to rail against personality change much more so than they railed against getting sober. See that distinction? Yeah. So, um, here's a formula we'd probably all want to pay attention to, bottom of page 48 in the 12 by. For pride leading to self-justification, always spurred by conscious or unconscious fears, is the basic breeder of most human difficulties, the chief block to true progress. For pride, and again, I'm, I can't teach in a brief period of time the complexities that are explained in the 12 by of this interrelationship of instincts, each and of themselves, and then when they bind together. And when you've got self-esteem and emotional security married in you, as I have from an early age, if I didn't feel secure, I didn't feel good about me. If I didn't feel good about me, I didn't feel secure. This generates a lot of demands in my life. So for pride leading to self-justification and always spurred by conscious or unconscious fears is the basic breeder of most human difficulties, the chief block to true progress. Pride lures us into making demands upon ourselves or upon others which cannot be met without perverting or misusing our God-given instincts. Pride lures us into making demands upon ourselves or upon others which cannot be met without perverting or misusing our God-given instincts. When the satisfaction of our instincts for sex, security, and society becomes the sole object of our lives, then pride steps in to justify our excesses. All these failings generate fear, a soul sickness in its own right, then fear in turn generates more character defects, unreasonable fear that our instincts will not be satisfied, drive us to covet the possessions of others, to lust for sex and power, to become angry when our instinctive demands are threatened, to be envious when the ambitions of others seem to be realized while 
ours are not. So again, for me, this is going to, this is a lifelong study. But having that list, um, I think is, is one of the greatest aids to this. Um, now, just out of interest, interest, and I'm not going to go through it, but the bottom of page 50 and most of page 51 feels to me like Bill's fifth step, Bill's fourth step. Um, real insight into his um, uh, parts of self-affected. <clears throat> and whether or not that's true, I don't know. But um, it just struck me that there were a lot of times in this book when it felt as though I was reading Bill's story in a different way. <clears throat> Joe and Charlie talked about step six and seven not only as the pick and shovel steps, but they gave a behavioral, they gave behavioral directions. Step six is don't do what you want to do. Step seven is do what you don't want to do. Now that's not what it says on page 76. But I now know why they taught that. Don't do what you want to do. Look where, look what the gap between six and seven is up on the board. If, if the proportion of self and spirit is shifting in me from over-reliance on self with spirit walled in to less reliance on self and the spirit in me is able to, to flourish, the step six proportion right in the middle there is that as these circles are constantly, these are just snapshots, but I think they're helpful visuals. As, you know, I'm a, I, at step six, I'm going to be about maybe, let's just say, 51% self and 49% spirit. And seven, I'm going to be 51% spirit and 49% self. So six uses the term character defect. Don't do what you want to do. Don't practice the old behavior. We can see that behavior now. This is a great part about becoming spiritually fit. We're no longer, um, we no longer Don't think so. We no longer are extreme examples of self-will run riot, though we usually don't think so. We still have self-will, but we're now very aware of it. And I think a very helpful guideline for moment-to-moment -moment behavior is don't do what you want to do. Do what you don't want to do. And they talk about six and seven being steps of replacement. Um, you know, you got dirty, you got a dirty swimming pool water in the spring. Well, you can put a hose in it and let it, let the skimmer take it over the next few months to get clean. Or you can empty it out, acid wash it, paint it, and fill it up with fresh water. And that's what I think Joe and Charlie's six and seven is let's not practice the old, let's practice the new, let's replace it with the new. And every character defect has its opposite. Dishonesty, honest. Don't be dishonest, be honest. Don't be angry, be courageous, or whatever the, whatever the opposites might be. Um, However, um, in the chapter 6 in the 12 and 12, there's a nice simple statement, affirmation on page 64, lines 8 through 10, of this distinction between early recovery and later recovery. Um, having 
been granted a perfect release from alcoholism, early recovery, why then shouldn't we be able to achieve by the same means a perfect release from every other difficulty or defect? And the reason that the summary of step six has the language we're entirely ready to to have God remove all these defects of character in the midst of a program that touts progress, not perfection, is related to this statement, is related to the fact that we may be perfectly removed from alcohol, but we will never be perfectly removed from these other troubles. What's the source of these other troubles? Our instincts. And the only time you get rid of your instincts is when you die. So don't pray to have your instincts removed <laughs> unless you want to die. We don't, we don't get rid of self. We have self brought back into its intended range. We are always human. And that's why that language on page 42 in the 12 by is so important when it says powerfully, blindly, many times, subtly, they drive us, dominate us, and insist upon ruling our lives. <clears throat> for what's about to be explained in this book, in, in page 64. Um, lines 14 to 22. When men and women pour so much alcohol into themselves, page 64, 12 by, that they destroy their lives, they commit a most unnatural act, defying their instinctive desire for self-preservation, security, they seem bent upon self-destruction. They work against their own deepest instinct. As they are humbled by the terrific beating administered by alcohol, the grace of God can enter them and expel their obsession. Here their powerful instinct to live can cooperate fully with their creator's desire to give them new life. A perfect release from alcohol. But... Most of our other difficulties don't fall under such a category at all. Every normal person wants, for example, to eat, to reproduce, to be somebody. And this is why I'm so blessed to have been told a long time ago by Marion Forbes, Fred, be careful never to become somebody because that pride and prestige can screw up the rest of your life as much as anything else in sobriety. But most of our other difficulties don't fall under such a category at all, <laughs> meaning work against our instincts. Every normal person wants, for example, to eat, to reproduce, or to be somebody in the society of their fellows. And they wish to be reasonably safe and secure as they try to attain these things. Indeed, God made them that way. God did not design people to destroy themselves by alcohol, but he did give them man, he did give us instincts to help us stay alive. It is now evident, it is nowhere evident, at least in this life, that our Creator expects us to fully eliminate our instinctual drives. Since most of us are born with an abundance of natural desires, it isn't strange that we often let these far exceed their intended purpose. This is just a restatement of what it said on page 42. Um, so step six, further on down that page, on 65, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character is AA's way of stating the best possible attitude one can take in order to make a beginning 
on this lifetime job of living with our instincts. Now it gets even more interesting on the next page, and I'm going to just, starting on the bottom of 66 and 67, I'm going to highlight in some individual words. Exalt, love, feel a little superior, feel a lot superior. We like, like, enjoyable, take satisfaction, brings a comfortable... Do you think, does it sound like I'm talking about drugs? <laughs> Enjoyable, take satisfaction, brings a comfortable feeling. Satisfaction, taking our comfort, warped yet definite satisfaction. Here's, here's something pretty amazing for me. On these two pages, 66 and 67, it essentially is, is telling me, and keep in mind what I said about the instincts and brain chemistry, that our, our brain is chemically wired to give us a reward dose in the pleasure center when an instinct is fulfilled. And, and, and this is what is blowing me away about this, about this book. It's explaining on these two pages that my new drug of choice becomes the brain chemistry of low-grade instincts exceeding their proper function. bottom of 66 we are we must what we must recognize now is that we exult in some of our defects now i used to read this and say oh yeah i love my character defects i don't want to give them up this is brain chemistry the reason i love my character defects is that they give me this little bolus of dopamine because they're in this instinctually designed pattern in my brain chemistry We exult in some of our defects. We really love them. Who, for example, doesn't like to feel just a little superior to the next person or even quite a lot superior? So my new drug of choice is walking around feeling superior at the expense of others. Anybody ever done that? And, and you don't even have to let them know you're doing it. You can have this little party all by yourself. Yeah, drug of no choice. Isn't it true that we like to let greed masquerade as ambition? To think of liking lust seems impossible, but how many men and women, thank you for the political correctness, Bill, speak love with their lips and believe what they say so that they can hide lust in a dark corner of their minds. Hidden sex. Hidden bolus of dopamine through an, a sexual fantasy. And even while staying, catch this, and even while staying within conventional bounds looks okay, many people have to admit that their imaginary sex excursions are apt to be all dressed up as dreams of romance. Self-righteous anger also can be very enjoyable. In a perverse way, we can actually take satisfaction from the fact that many people annoy us, for it brings a comfortable feeling of superiority. It satisfies a self-esteem and pride and often in, in prestige. And so these combinations of things make it even more powerful. 
Gossip barbed with anger. Gossip barbed with our anger, a polite form of murder by character assassination, has its satisfactions for us too. Here we are not trying to help those we criticize. We are trying to proclaim our own righteousness. Low-grade instincts exceeding their proper function out of the context of proper to God and appropriate to others become our new drug of no choice. Powerfully, blindly, many times subtly, they drive us, dominate us, and insist upon ruling our lives. This is the science of untreated alcoholism. This is the science of dry drunk. This is putting the plug in the jug without the mature sobriety being followed through the constant practice of the recognition of these things and the constant following of simple directions because left to our own devices, it'll be imbalanced. Does this make sense? When gluttony is less than ruinous, and again, the the phrases, um, even while staying within conventional bounds, when gluttony is less than ruinous, we're not talking about blatant examples of these things. We're talking about low-grade examples of these things. When gluttony is less than ruinous, we have a milder word for that too. We call it taking our comfort. We live in a world riddled with envy. To a greater or less degree, everybody is infected with envy. From this defect, we must surely get a warped yet definite satisfaction. Else why would we consume such great amounts of time wishing for what we have not rather than working for it or angrily looking for attributes we shall never have instead of adjusting to the fact and accepting it? Now, in my life, I have, an, I have a genetic version of this. My mother described her mother as always envying the people around Warroad, Minnesota, who had money, the wealthy people. And my grandfather was the first financial officer of the Marvin Window Company, which back then was, I think, something like the Marvin Cedar and Storm Door Company. And my mother was like that. And guess what I'm like? that envy of others having things that I don't think I have, that I need, that I I want, that I don't have. And reading this gives me freedom to understand that this is just simply one more example of a low-grade good thing in me that's got a constellation, and I say genetic because here's three generations that demonstrate it, and, and here, here becomes a simple solution for me to read this. And how often we work hard with no better motive than to secure and slothful later on. To be secure and slothful later on, only we call it retiring. Consider, too, our talents for procrastination, which is really sloth in five syllables. I feel judged every time I read that. Um, <laughs> I'd much rather be an adult attention deficit disorder than than five syllables of sloth. 
Nearly anyone can submit a good list of such defects as these, and few of us would seriously think of giving them up, at least until they cause an excessive misery. But the problem is that they block us from God constantly during the day. They supplant the reliance on God. And I am so grateful for Ernest Kurtz's summary of this. He says, we need to seek the satisfaction of our instincts proper to God and appropriate to others. And when we do that, we'll be just fine. And guess what service work does? Service is an incredible formula for getting our instincts met, except leave the sex off, step 13, doesn't apply. (laughs) I mean, being a whole person will help you be a, a whole human being, will help you attract people that you're attracted to. But service work, companionship, Prestige, self-esteem, pride, personal relationships. Security, emotional and material. I mean, it's, it's, it's really incredible. We need to, to live in a manner that fulfills our instincts, proper to God and appropriate to others. And then we get the deal. Um, Yes. Sure. When you you asked the question earlier, you understand this, and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, I barely understand it after reading it, but after 18 years and even a little more, do I begin to scratch the surface of understanding how you were reading reading it to us? You know, that's about it. I'm not a cheap people myself. But, you know, Bill was much more, Bill may have been a human being like I am. Well, as as uh, the question is, where did Joe? How how was huh, Joe? How was Bill able to come up with this stuff? You know, who were his influences and teachers? And um, <coughs> Bill got some psychiatric help in the '40s from Harry Tebow, who informed the fellowship a lot about personality issues. Um, Joe says in Recovery Dynamics that working with this information f- for 14 years. Um, since the big book was written to when the 12 by 12 came out, um, gave Bill a lot of experience in witnessing this stuff in others, and that Bill had exposure to other great minds, uh, including Reverend Bishop Fulton Sheen. I mean, he attracted some real state-of-the-art thinkers and theologians and people, and I think it's, for me, it's the next glorious part of this, as I said yesterday, once I started, once the information in the big book was revealed to me about what's in it, I became much more interested in AA history. And now, once this information is revealed in me, I'm much more interested in, in the history of how Bill came up with this stuff. And my my big question is, you know, I, 
thank the, the internet's pretty cool and I Google instincts and I Google social sex and I mean there's a lot of different contexts in which these things are talked about and I'm I've got calls into some AA archivists you know I'm not an archivist I'm not an AA historian I'm a student of everything I do and um, there are probably people out there who know where Bill got this level uh, what paradigm he got this level um, I'm, I have no idea whether he, this emerged through everything that came into him and then this is what came out. But this constellation of instincts thing, uh, to me, is more evidence of the genius uh, the, and the spiritual element. I mean, we could just easily say it was spiritually inspired by that, that constant attempt. But I think, as we all know, Bill was just as human as the rest of us. So, But, um, yeah, getting this stuff unlocked is pretty exciting. We need to live in a manner that meets our instincts proper to God and appropriate to others. And that's why Kurtz makes the big point about demanding our instincts being met, ignores the proper to God and ignores the, the appropriate to others. The I want, what I want, when I want it, I want it now and I'll stomp my baby feet till I get it, is not a sustainable way of living. If my context is spiritual, my life will be sustainable. If my context is self, I will struggle in the manner that all of this language supports. And there are 10,000 children of the ego. I think Chuck C. used to say that. Um, there are 10,000 ways that I can manifest in the world being spiritually unfit. There are 10,000 children of the ego. Oh. oh, if my context is spiritual, my life will be sustainable. If my context is self, my life will not be sustainable as an alcoholic because if my context is in self, then I'm in the spiritual malady and I'm not standing in the sunlight of God and I won't get the spiritual, I won't get the daily reprieve in the long term. It'll make me miserable before it gets me with alcohol and drugs. Either way, it's killing me. Yes? Oh, absolutely. And that was Bill's intent early on. He, I think Bill always desired, and this is just an observation of mine as a student, Bill always wanted, as I said from the way that Step 12 was written in the original manuscript, having had a spiritual experience as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to others especially alcoholics. And early on, they were carrying the message to, to family members. You know, uh, I don't know if I should say this on tape or not, but a lot of Al-Anon does not use the big book because it, uh, it's not Al-Anon conference-approved literature. So be it. But let me read you what it says on page 18. An illness of this sort, and we have come to believe in an illness, involves those about us in a way no other human sickness can. If a person has cancer, big book, page 18, all are sorry for them, and no one is angry or hurt, but not so with the alcoholic illness, for with it there goes an annihilation of all the things worthwhile in life. The alcoholic illness engulfs all those whose lives touch the sufferers. It brings misunderstanding, fierce resentment, financial insecurity, disgusted friends and employers, warped lives of blameless children. 
before the age of 10. Sad spouses and parents, anyone can increase the list. We hope this volume, the big book, will inform and comfort those who are or who may be affected. In working with others, it says, if your prospect doesn't want help, work with their family. In the Clinton Street meetings, it was everybody in one meeting. So, again, our trouble as alcoholics is that we'll want to promote this stuff, not attract it. Self promotes, spirit attracts. So I think it's good that we keep it among, that, that the intent of this isn't for the world, even though its applicability is certainly as good analysis of human behavior as you'll ever find in any psychology or sociology. The 12 traditions, incredible social class. 12 steps, incredible elements of, of and, and with the 12 by, incredible elements of, of our human nature. So Bill wanted this to happen. Uh, and he says that maybe this will make it even more likely. Uh, okay, we having fun yet? So um, let me let me just catch up where I am here. Page sixty-eight. Um, top. But even the, these people, if they construct a list of still milder defects, excuse me, still milder defects, will be obliged to admit that they prefer to hang on to some of them. This is simple brain chemistry. We prefer to hang on to the things that help us feel good. And so what it's essentially saying is that getting sober is more intuitive to our human nature, but getting mature sobriety is more counterintuitive to our human nature because we derive so much instinctual reinforcement from these relationships. And that, that, that distinction is really clear. Our own instincts are fully with us to stop doing something that's killing us. But what we're up against for mature sobriety is this constellation of instincts that kind of still want to have their way. And that's why the language of the summary step six says we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character simply because step six is AA's way of stating the best possible attitude, the best possible context one can take in order to make a beginning on this lifetime job. You have to shoot very high to make any progress. Correct. Exactly. You have to shoot very high to make any progress whatsoever. And again, the progress, not perfection. But we, we have this very clear spiritual ideal. It's like the sex ideal in the four-step inventory. Write a sex ideal. A lot of people don't read that part. It says write down a sex life that is proper to God and appropriate to others, essentially. And then see how you do. Now, Bill Wilson's the last guy I'd go to for sex counseling. <laughs> 
There was no real infidelity due because drunkenness and love for my wife kept me out of those scrapes. Um, no real infidelity, just hard or moderate infidelity. Uh, so Bill starts out this chapter by talking about this is the step that, that separates the men from the boys. And then he makes that clearer on page 68 when he says, striving for a self-determined objective, that's the boys. Striving for the perfect objective, that's the man. And striving for a self-determined objective is what that list of low-grade character defects, low-grade instincts out of control, still create in my life even when I'm not drinking. But again, it isn't the crisis form of these things. It's just the little thing. And, and somebody said another version of this for me earlier on. I picked up a lot of truth in my first 12 years of sobriety without knowing the context of the big book. And one of the things somebody said to me was, you know, Fred, it's not as important how many meetings you go to every week, but the quality of how you live your life in between the meetings. And that had a great appeal to me. It made sense. And, and now I'm discovering why that had great appeal to me and made sense, because this is a way of living, not a way of getting sober, not just a way of getting sober. And in terms of what this book is broadening and deepening, getting sober is a, is a, is a lay-in compared to dealing with getting emotionally balanced and living lives of good purpose. And that's the theme of the 12 and 12. Not just getting sober, but getting emotionally balanced and living lives of good purpose. It all ties into this instinctual management. So... But what, what the good news is, and it's kind of a summary of that, the good news is that we can get that good brain chemistry when we do these things in the appropriate, uh, proper to God and appropriate to others. Yes? Perfect. Striving is, is a, a, a word that's used in here. Um, striving, we're not striving for a self-determined objective. We're striving for the perfect objective. Yeah. And when do we need to strive? Now. That's only time. Now. Um, Yes. Perfect and enlarge. Uh, 
Yeah, that that would be an example of um, to perfect something. I think is some is to always tinker with it. It doesn't say to become perfect, but to perfect it. And if I'm perfecting something in my shop, then I'm going to go out each day and see what I can do to make it a little bit better. And that's what inventors do. They take an existing um, thing, they put it in a different context, and then try to make it better for that different context. You know, pinking shears would be, you know, shears for doing the bushes would be from an early scissors, that kind of stuff. So to perfect and enlarge, and I think enlarge, again, demonstrates progress, not perfection. So, um, now I love saying that the directions for steps 10 and 11 in the big book on pages 84, 85, 86, 87, and 88 indicate a time frame for when I'm going to use them. And it, the book is really pretty clear that the only time I need to follow directions for steps 10 and 11, once I've been transformed in steps 1 through 9, once I've completed amends, is on awakening, throughout the day, and when I retire at night. And the rest of the time I get to do anything I want. And so these directions for on awakening throughout the day and when we retire at night are really very, really very straightforward, really very simple. The essence of step 11 work when we retire at night is a very clear replica of the old Oxford group process of guidance. It talks about what used to be the hunch or the occasional inspiration now becomes a working part of the mind and in our character circles up there, what used to be the hunch or the occasional inspiration, that's the little thumbnail of spirit in, that constitutes my character when I'm spiritually unfit, punching through every once in a while. Hunch or the occasional inspiration, now when I'm transformed, having faced and be rid of the things in myself that have been blocking me, in other words, having gotten a handle on these instincts exceeding their proper function, it now becomes a working part of the mind. And literally, guidance is tapping into that individually and actually hearing a voice and not needing to be on meds because you're hearing voices. <laughs> but that good orderly direction becomes a working part of our minds because it, we're, it's not drowned out by the voice of all of our instinctual demands. Again, another way of talking about over-reliance on self. Um, on page 84, the directions for step 10 are made very simply clear, and we're, in the, we're back in the big book, that step 10 directions are a repeat of what I learned in the process of four through nine. So the idea that each step delivers me to the next step, each step causes the next step. One, the problem causes two, the solution. Two, the solution causes three, the decision to seek the solution. 
Three, the decision causes four through nine, the action to bring about the solution. And four through nine cause 10 and 11, the continued use of that same self-examination process, self-examination prayer and meditation process that got me transformed in the first place. But now I'm not using it applied to my entire life up to that point. It's not a wholesale life inventory. On a daily basis, it's a real-time inventory. And so the instructions, two-thirds of the way down, page 84, say continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. That's a restatement of step four. When these selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear crop up, we ask God at once to remove them. That's what we do in step six and seven. We discuss them with someone immediately. That's what we do in step five. And make amends quickly if we have harmed anyone. That's what we do in eight and nine. Then it not only has me learn the spiritual lesson of my humanness each time I experience it each day, but then it reminds me to resolutely turn my thoughts to someone I can help. Service. Service is the ultimate way of getting our instinctual needs met in a healthy way. When we retire at night, we constructively review our day. You know, essentially the step 11, the step 10 instructions for when I go review my step 10 work appear kind of in the text for step 11. And so we're really reviewing our 10th step work when we retire at night. Call it whichever step you want. Were we resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid? Step four, do we owe an apology? Steps eight and nine. Have we kept something to ourselves which should be discussed with another person at once? Step five. Were we kind and loving toward all? Were we doing things appropriate to others? What could we have done better? What could we have done to perfect our work that day. What could we have done better? Where am I? Were we thinking of ourselves most of the time? Or were we thinking of what we could do for others, of what we could pack into the stream of life? Packing that into the stream of life always felt like my self-centeredness, but in this context, it isn't. But, eh, warning, we must be careful not to drift into three more children of the ego, worry, remorse, or morbid reflection. Now, it's not all about me. Why do I want to be careful not to drift into worry, remorse, or morbid reflection? For that would diminish our usefulness to others. And again, this bent on service. And, and, you know, our program of action came from a group that was attempting to recreate first century Christianity. And this, these are the directions for now at this level of step 12, of this level of being spiritually fit, having been brought to this, our goal is to manifest that in the world, to be of service. And we do that through attraction, not promotion. Beware the person who puts their business card up on the AA bulletin board that says sponsees needed. 
Now that 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 could work, and and I'm not being critical of anything specific. But the idea of people seeking that actively is less reflective of the style of how this message is carried. That you go to a meeting <clears throat> that's there for the newcomer that respects them. You share your experience, strength, and hope. And Henry would attract somebody that I might not attract, that might not be attracted to Neil, but that's why we're there, to share that. And when somebody comes up to you after a meeting and says, where'd you learn that? Gee, I really enjoyed that. Um, there's the possible open door to the kind of relationship, the kind of sponsorship that grew AA. And the kind of sponsorship that grew AA was based on the culture at that time that to become a member of a private group, you had to be sponsored by an existing member. Athletic clubs, country clubs, you had to be sponsored by an existing member. It was no different for AA. You had to be sponsored by an existing member. And sponsorship meant that they shared the directions that transformed them with you. Then you were a member of the group. And I think the a really classic, I'm not going to go over it right now, but on page 263, the man who sold himself short starts on the bottom of 262, um, is a great example of the kind of sponsorship that grew AA. And he says, I wish that every AA could have the benefit of this type of sponsorship today. And there's all sorts of sponsorship out there. It isn't based on that. No opinion about that. But um, uh, I feel blessed to have a clearer idea of what that means to me today, what sponsorship means to me. So quickly some quotes from the 12 by on step 10, first paragraph, page 88. As we work the first nine steps, we prepare ourselves for the adventure of a new life. But when we approach step 10, we commence to put our AA way of living to practical use day by day in fair weather or foul. Then comes the acid test. Can we stay sober, keep an emotional balance, and live to good purpose under all conditions? And these are the goals of mature sobriety to keep in emotional balance and to live for good purpose. A continuous look at our assets and liabilities and a real desire to learn and grow by this means are necessities for us. Um, and then on the bottom of that page, it's, it's I think where that emotions are the vocabulary of our instincts. When a drunk has a terrific hangover because he drank heavily yesterday, he cannot live well today. But there is another kind of hangover which we all experience, whether we are drinking or not. That is the emotional hangover, the direct result of yesterday's and sometimes today's excesses of negative emotion, anger, fear, jealousy, and, like, and the like. If we would live serenely today and tomorrow, we certainly need to eliminate these hangovers. This doesn't end uh, and on and on. Um, 
On page 91, it talks about we need self-restraint, honest analysis of what is involved, a willingness to admit the fault is ours, and an equal willingness. And this is that kind of real-time accountable living. Tim Allen was on the um, Inside the Actors Studio, the James Lipton interview uh, thing, and, and he talked about uh, his, his recovery. And he said recovery gave him a seven-second delay before he called someone a really bad name. <laughs> and it, this self-restraint, that we don't just get to live in the instant of our emotions. We need to have that little time out, and, and a seven-second delay is fully adequate to not respond to a situation from an overreaction. And to me, self-reacts, spirit responds, and there's a big difference. And taking that count of three, whatever it takes, that's why it says we pause, we relax, and take it easy. We face doubt, agitation, or indecision. We pause, we relax, and take it easy, and the right answer will come. Why will the right answer come? Because it's not that far away from me anymore. I've got to write it in ink on my hand when I'm working on this program. But when I've, when I've been on the path of transformation for a while, I know, I know right from wrong. I just have to demonstrate some self-restraint. Well, I want to finish up today with, with a really glorious... Um, language on page 97 in the step 11 section. Those of us who have come to make regular use of prayer, and, and there's some incredible extensive essays here on prayer and meditation. And it's all kind of set up with this. Those of us who have come to make regular use of prayer would, do, would no more do without it than we would refuse air, food, or sunshine. Now, well, that doesn't draw me in because that's what they're doing. But this is what draws me in. <clears throat> when we refuse air, light, or food, the body suffers. Oh, I didn't, I didn't read everything I wanted to. Those of us who have come to make regular use of prayer would no more do without it than we would refuse air, food, or sunshine. And for the same reason, when we refuse air, light, or food, the body suffers. And when we turn away from meditation and prayer, we likewise deprive our minds, our emotions, and our intuitions of vitally needed support. As the body can fail its purpose for lack of nourishment, so can the soul. Soul purpose. We all need, catch this language, the light of God's reality, the nourishment of God's strength, and the atmosphere of God's grace. We all need the light of God's reality, the nourishment of God's strength, and the atmosphere of God's grace. And then good old me and Mr. Logic and Linear Guy, I'm looking on the rest of this, and, and it goes on to say, we will want the good that is in all of us, even in the worst of us, to flower and grow. Page 55, the good that is in all of us. 
to flourish, to flower and grow. Most carefully, we shall need bracing air and abundance of food. I'm on page the next page now, 98. But first of all, we shall want sunlight. Nothing much, more, nothing, nothing much can grow in the dark. Meditation is our step out into the sun. And then it goes on to, to talk about these things. So self-examination, prayer, and meditation. This is the boilerplate stuff that I use this book for for, for a long time. Uh, right on the top of 98, there is a direct linkage among self-examination, meditation, and prayer. I never read on. And now reading on gets me to that kind of language. Um, he does the St. Francis of Assisi prayer. He continues to talk about spiritual atmosphere. I mean, these, these images are, are very powerful for me uh, in terms of uh, um, just a, a context for prayer and meditation. And he goes into quite a bit of talk about um, the, the nature of correct prayer. There's an element on page 124 that I want to finish with after I say that on pay, in, in, in prayer, as discussed in, in uh, Step 11, um, is on page 105 it says, one of the greatest rewards of meditation in prayer is the sense of belonging that comes to us. Well, what instinct do you think that relates to? Yes, security and society, but in, in the social realm, the first one on the top of the list, companionship. A natural desire to belong and be accepted. Meditation and prayer get us a sense of belonging as kids in God's pack, dogs in God's pack. Chuck sees morning meditation, perfect. God's kid reporting for duty. It's got it all. Um, and then on page 124, just a, a closing thought. Are we down to like minutes? Okay. Top of 124. But today in well-matured AAs, these distorted drives, instincts, have been restored to something like their true purpose and direction. Certainly necessary and right and surely God-given. Distorted drives have been restored to their true purpose and direction. We no longer strive to dominate or rule those about us in order to gain self-importance. We no longer seek fame and honor in order to be praised. And again, now I understand at great depth every element of myself that needs that but goes about getting it in a way improper to God and inappropriate to others. But that today in well-matured AAs, these distorted drives have been restored to something like true, like their true purpose and direction. We no longer strive, etc. Now, bottom of page, it just says, um, true ambition is not what we thought it was. True ambition is the deep desire to live usefully and walk humbly under the grace of God. True ambition. Ambition... Is the, is the one instinct that applies to every one of our human instincts. True ambition. And if you insert this little board in your computer of your life, 
True ambition is the deep desire to live usefully and walk humbly under the grace of God. Well, you've been a great audience. This is a special place and a special time. And um, thank you for seeming to take some interest in the things that uh, are interesting me as well. Thanks a lot. Thank you.